this has been a, I guess you could say, unique time in history. And we've probably all been going through some first-time experiences since the last time that I released an episode in December of 2019. I myself have been experiencing a lot of firsts as I started rotating in hospitals. And I definitely want to share some of those experiences with you guys in episodes coming soon. But today we're going to try something new. I'm bringing on a co-host. And actually, I've accompanied him on the piano a few times. But for this episode, we embarked on a new creative project. We've made an episode that we're calling First Reckoning. We are very excited about it. This episode has been a year in the making, and it is as timely as ever to be releasing it now. Our country, as well as the field of medicine, again is reckoning with racism. In this episode, we talk to black med students about the unique challenges that they face. Then we discuss how we can better support them. In our work toward justice, supporting black med students must be our priority. Stephen Bogier has this story. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore? And then run? Since high school, I've dreamt of becoming a great physician. But that dream was deferred when I had a bad exam. The result was I had to take time off. During that time, I volunteered. I was involved with student organizations and I worked on research. But I also struggled with self-doubt and imposter syndrome. The psychological pattern in which one doubts one's accomplishments and has a persistent internalized fear of being exposed as a fraud. I wondered whether I could succeed in med school, what my faults were, and how I could improve. I learned that I wasn't alone. Of the six black men in my original class, only three continued to their second year. Though the sample size is small, that statistic compelled me to look into this further because I knew we were all capable of being great students. But I wondered if we shared any experiences that might have made our journeys that much more complicated. So, I spoke with other black med students who had to take time off from school. And now, we'll share insights from those conversations. First, we'll hear from Rob who found himself in a situation similar to mine. I think that that was kind of the turmoil that was in my head for a long time. Just, you have failed, you have failed, you have failed. And that was kind of just what I was saying to myself for a long period of time. Not passing an exam in medical school hurts, especially when you're someone who has consistently done well in school since you were young. Missing the mark can make you feel like an imposter. Like, med school is too much to handle. Like, I, especially through undergrad, I was also helping my mom complete her um, bachelor's degree. And so there was a lot of 
signi- yeah, significant um, assistance in getting that taken care of. And I don't regret and resent that at all. That's just, you know, what family does for one another. But at the same time, it was essentially me doing two degrees at the same time. Um, By itself, preclinical classes have more than enough work to do. But med students often add more to their plate because that's just who we are. First-generation med students, like Rob and myself, don't have family who are physicians. So it can be hard to explain to them the long hours and commitment that med school requires. In many ways, they can be a source of support, but also a source of stress. Uh, I think a lot of it also comes from personal expectations, a lot of family expectations, um, especially if you have a family that's like sacrificed a lot to get you the position that you're at and then they see you struggling, that kind of like has issues of guilt, disappointment, etc. We feel an immense pressure to succeed, to carry the family forward. Another source of stress is debt. At many medical schools, if you repeat a semester, you have to pay that tuition again. I feel like they assume a debt profile for all students that is very, very different from what, frankly, low-income students, but also low-income students particularly who make enough that they don't get a high scholarship but then don't make so much that, you know, they can fund their entire education. There's a lot of students who, like, either get funding from their parents or, like, some outside source as well on top of that. But for me, that's very, like, moments where that happens is few and far between. Luckily, I don't think I want to do anything but medicine. But if I were to realize that, like, this wasn't something that I could actually end up doing, I don't really feel like I could reasonably quit given the amount of debt that I have and go and do something else. So at this point, it's like, you have to succeed or God help you. Rob and I often get confused for each other, though we look nothing alike. Interestingly enough, though we have very different talents, personalities, and names, I found a lot of commonalities in our experiences during our first year of medical school. And because of the overlap in our experiences, it was nice to find validation in the stories he shared. Med school is hard enough when one only has to worry about classes and core requirements. But many students, especially black students, often have other responsibilities and life events that require our time, attention, and mental processing. In revisiting that trauma, I realized that I hadn't fully processed it because the way the medical school curriculum works is you go, go, go until you can't go anymore, and then you consider taking a year off. Danielle, a close friend and peer mentor of mine, decided to take time off during her third year of medical school in the wake of being held at gunpoint by a police officer during a routine traffic stop. And unfortunately, students of color are more likely to have things arise than you know, other students. And because of that, I think that's where where I think a lot of schools drop the ball. Mm. In that if, if you acknowledge that, then you can be proactive. But if you don't, you're continuously picking up the pieces and trying to apply the same solutions and fixes that you use for other people's problems to a group 
where it just doesn't fit. Not having fully processed the trauma of her experiences, she felt that she wasn't fully able to effectively complete her clerkship rotations. This was heightened by the pressure of conforming to specific ideals of professionalism. A patient came in um, from Washington Heights, New York. I lived there for about two years during um, undergrad uh, because I went to City College. And he asked me where I was from, and I told him. And he started talking to me about some of the restaurants in the area. And I was like, oh, yeah, I really like that restaurant. It was really great. Um, and the feedback I got from my um, preceptor was that I was too informal with the patients. And I don't, I don't know specifically what she meant by that. I really don't know specifically what she was referring to, but I think it was that instance. And for me, someone who values being able to go back to my community and serve that demographic, what I regarded as rapport, she regarded as unprofessional. Danielle's story makes me wonder why we encourage students to place such importance on the doctor-patient relationship and building a good bedside manner if we are going to be criticized for building rapport during an encounter. We want people who are um, underrepresented in medicine. However, we also want them to conform mm. to what we say is professional to what we say is acceptable and I think by and like we want them to conform to the culture of medicine. Questions like these add to the mental calculus that underrepresented minorities must often do. We are forced to question how much of our identities we can bring into this profession. I think this year I want to work on being able to incorporate who I am, where I'm from, without detracting from the professionalism. However, I don't think in that instance I, I technically did, but maybe just like perfecting that balance a little bit more. We are forced to understand the intentions behind a microaggression and to deal with unseen issues, all on top of mastering academic content. What's worse is that our relative invisibility, especially of our unique circumstances, can make us feel like we have to figure everything out on our own. We are less likely to see faculty members and educators who look like us and have an acute understanding or empathy toward our experiences. The stakes were high. Each exam I go into, till this day, each exam I take, the stakes are very high. And you know, and I don't want, I don't want to, I don't know what other students' experiences are, so I can't speak on that. But each exam I take is high stakes, right? So I'm getting in there, you know, and I realize that like, and I never used to have this issue. Man, I get my anxiety goes. I, I don't even have anxiety. I, you know, my blood pressure will go up. My, I start my hands will start sweating. So sometimes I take beta blockers for exams, right? It's not like I'm getting off the street. Like, I was prescribed it for exams. That's Ahmed, MD class of 2022, my fraternity brother, and one of the founders of Beta Omega Chi Incorporated. Faculty help us get across the finish line, 
but they can also make us feel like we're being watched. When I, as soon as I came in here, I knew that like I was being watched. I'm always being watched. And then like, oh, is Ahmed gonna mess up now? Or is what's gonna happen here? You know, I mean, I'm grateful to be here, and but I do know that I that I'm gonna finish. I'm gonna get the job done. But I feel like it's always this high pressure of like, what's going on next? And like, I always feel like I have to prove myself. And at least that's just how I feel. It's weird when you have to prove yourself rather than you feel like you can go to someone and tell them so and so so and so is happening. You cannot genuinely develop a true mentorship or true relationship um, unless you feel comfortable going to someone and having to just tell them what's going on rather than you feel like you always have to be at your 100% best with them. Black medical faculty are essential. While great physicians and mentors can be of any background, black physicians can connect and empathize with students in a way that non-black physicians can't. So for me, so I'll start with the first part. So. For me, the my my medical degree, my MD, my future MD, is is I always say is always bigger than me because for me, it's it's for every young boy in Brooklyn, uh, young black boy in Brooklyn in those in those public schools, um, you know, who are always told that they can't do something or they can't, you know, you you are always put down or always never given the right opportunities or end up, you know, incarcerated or end up, you know, in parentless home or whatever the case, all, all these issues that people face. I mean, you know, and for me, it's, I have to come back. I have to go back home. I have to be like, yeah, I, I did it. I can do it. Um, and I have to serve as that leadership <coughs> role because that's my responsibility now to, to be back there and, and, and incite change and, and help the community. And tell all those young boys because I wish it was different for me then um, and now I'm in a position where I could actually bring that change. To better support black med students, we need to hire more black faculty. The most fundamental, the most basic level, if you want to implement change and you in, in, in the learning environment and you want to make the students feel like, yes, they are there, they're supposed to be there and you want to Make sure that they're able to learn and feel safe and, and come to school every day willingly, you know, then bring more people in. To be honest, sometimes, you know, we, we try to think of the most strategic ways and the most, you know, sophisticated ways to do well, you know, talk to a learning specialist and this and that. And sometimes all, all I want to hear is that like, yo, you can do this. Go work hard. Go study hard. You can do this. If you're part of the majority, you likely haven't had to stop and take measure of how many faculty physicians look like you. But for Black students, the scarcity of Black physician mentors is yet another reminder of our existence in a space that wasn't designed to include us. This scarcity adds to the pressure we feel to be that one for ourselves and for future medical students. For us, the stakes are always high. And sometimes, despite our resilience, we may still fall short. While I couldn't just up and buy another ticket, I was in North Carolina. 
Obviously, that's a long flight. I couldn't say, let me just plop down another $600 to buy another ticket. Kevin had bought a plane ticket for school early to save money. But when the schedule for med school was released, he saw that he'd missed the first day of orientation. But changing his flight would have cost too much. I didn't miss orientation because I wanted to miss orientation. I just had to buy tickets early. So, on his first day of med school, Kevin was chastised. Despite financial constraints, he was told it was his responsibility to be there. I think ever since that day, I just wasn't really comfortable in the medical school. Kevin overcame a lot of challenges during his time in school. He wasn't getting the test scores that he wanted, and faculty were concerned that he wouldn't pass his first semester. The nail in the coffin was an event preceding my last exam. In front of the school's faculty, deans, professors, and administration, I had to share a statement about why I should stay in medical school. Days before the actual exam that would determine whether he'd pass for the semester, Kevin was put on trial. Even right now, I no longer want to do anything medically related. Healthcare, medical, nursing, nothing. I want nothing to do with it. I'm trying to switch careers now, but in order to do that, I have to financially reset everything. I have to pay off my loans, build up savings. I'm paying money for something that I didn't really get any benefit from, and I'm not really getting help with paying off the loans as well. Kevin had to repeat his first semester, but wasn't able to pass the second time. He now has to pay tuition for that semester twice. So, for the foreseeable future, he'll be paying off loans. But eventually, he wants to pivot to a field more welcoming to black folks. With Rob, we see how black students often have responsibilities beyond schoolwork and extracurriculars. Danielle reminded us that black students, like all of us, are not separate from the world that exists outside of medical school. Ahmed showed us that representation is important, not just for future med students, but for the ones here and now. And Kevin reminded us that our failure to meet the needs of students has profound consequences. We'll be right back. So Stephen and I started this episode back in August of 2019. Suffice to say, so much in the world has happened. Many instances of anti-Black police violence, folks at different schools and universities are speaking out against racism in education. Not to mention there's the pandemic happening. We're really in this watershed moment right now. So we've got to use this opportunity to figure out what's going on in our learning environment, what practices need fixing, how can we best support med students on their way to becoming physicians? These are all really important questions we need to be thinking about. So to wrap this episode up, I sat down with Stephen to ask him, where do we go from here? 
Stephen, you are starting your second year of medical school. Tell me about being a black med student in this moment. Well, I actually spoke about this topic when I gave a speech in front of the Rhode Island State House on June 14th as part of the Code Black RI Health Workers Against Racism rally. Um, but I've spent six years in Providence, and I'll be turning 25 next month. The same age as Ahmaud Arbery when he was chased down, cornered, and murdered by vigilantes. The same age as Raya Milton, a black trans woman who was shot several times and killed recently. I'm now older than Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, Ayanna Jones, Michael Brown, and two years younger than the late activist Erica Garner, daughter of the late Eric Garner, and two years younger than Ray Shard Brooks, a 27-year-old man Atlanta police shot and killed in a Wendy's drive-thru this weekend. I am tired. Being black in medical school is a constant battle between microaggressions and self-advocacy. But also imagine being a black man and seeing that you have the lowest life expectancy of your peers. Imagine being a black woman, too aware of the epidemic of black maternal and infant mortality, but too afraid to speak on the topic because it might anger those in more powerful positions. This past semester, myself and other black students had to continue learning about diseases for which we tend to have the poorest outcomes. Amidst a COVID-19 pandemic for which black and brown communities are disproportionately at risk, and amidst a chronic phenomenon in which we are uniquely at risk for being murdered on candid camera. So I've had to process all of this while simultaneously reminding myself to rest and be proud of the fact that I successfully finished my first year of med school. Academically, I performed significantly better this past semester than I did during my first year. It's confusing to want to be proud of that at the same time that there is so much uncertainty and tragedy in the world. That was a powerful response and an amazing speech, by the way, that you gave back in June. I wanted to ask you about the Affinity Group's United Joint Statement and Demands. And for those who don't know, it was a statement released by student groups at Brown regarding racism and medical education. As president of our chapter of the Student National Medical Association, also known as SNMA, um, and also as an individual, I'm very aware of my responsibility to improve the environments that I inhabit. And in response to this moment in history and to the longstanding complaints and shortcomings of medical education here at AMS and in the larger Brown institution, I thought it was important to bring together student affinity group leaders and put out a statement demanding change. I'm very proud of the work that we all did in creating that document and meeting with AMS senior leadership to make it clear that we are serious about our expectations for decisive action increased accountability, transparency, and effectiveness when it comes to meeting the concerns of URIM students and calling out the systemic racism in our community. And how has the response been so far? The response has been positive. 
And I'm encouraged by the support that seems to be coming from our senior leadership and also from senior university leadership. Now we need to see concrete action that reinforces the values they purport to have. Had work already been in motion on some of the demands and who's been working on that? The students have been largely involved in this work, but we also have supportive faculty, residents, and administrators doing this work as well. Some of the affinity group leaders that came together have been particularly instrumental in initial efforts to overhaul the anti-racist education in our curriculum. Rob, whom we heard from earlier in this episode, has been central to this work, along with other students that are now in their clerkship years. And all of you have been doing this on top of studying, correct, for free? (laughs) Yes. Okay. And how would you like to see medical schools and academic institutions respond to calls for action? It's time to step up. It's time for academic institutions to leverage their power and actually show up for their black and URIM students and differently able and queer and every marginalized identity that is apart from the norm. We know these institutions were not built with us in mind. We know these institutions were built on the backs of slaves. We know these institutions displaced Native American and ethnic communities. We know these things. The folks in power need to know these things. And with that knowledge, they need to put energy into the kind of restorative justice work that can really bring forward the work of trying to close the serious gaps and disparities that are pervasive and endemic, not only in healthcare but in our society as a whole. Academic leadership at institutions across this country need to make properly supporting their black and other students underrepresented in medicine their highest priority. See us for who we are. Worth it. Worth all of it. That is First Reckoning. Thank you to my co-host, Stephen Bogier, for being part of every stage of creating this episode. From interviewing to script writing to narrating, Stephen really was my co-author for this episode. And a special thank you to Danielle, Rob, Ahmed, and Kevin for bravely being vulnerable in sharing your stories and helping me to find validation for myself. Thank you to Dr. Julie Roth for mentoring this project. And thank you especially to Danielle, Rob, Ahmed, and Kevin for opening up to us and giving us so much help with this episode. Music is from Blue Dot Sessions. My name is Tino Della Merced. You've been listening to Firsts. 